You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Riff Flegman reported on a protest in March criticizing Indiana University's response to recent acts of discrimination. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community around the country and around the world, hosted by Abe Shapiro. But first, your local headlines. The Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on March 1st, Health Department Director Lori Kelly gave an update on COVID-19 and flu transmission in the county. Uh, Monroe County COVID-19 community level remains low, but transmission is noted as um, being in the high level. There are seven Indiana counties in the medium level and four in the high level. Uh, COVID concentrations and wastewater have taken a sharp decline as of February 25th. Uh, Flu levels remain at minimal levels. As of February 24th, there have been zero influenza-associated deaths uh, statewide. Commissioner Penny Githen congratulated the health department staff for their work in searching for grant funding to fight opioid issues in the county. I want to give a huge shout out and big thank you to uh, Ms. Kelly and to specifically Kathy Hewitt and Melanie Fischlag on her staff. Um, they worked tirelessly to put in a big grant proposal to the state, which has made um, up to $25 million available f- for fighting opioid issues among all the counties and communities throughout Indiana. Uh, this is a competitive grant. We worked very, very hard. We worked collaboratively with Centerstone, with the Indiana Recovery Alliance. Uh, I'm going to thank the city of Bloomington for offering, for, for pledging some support money, as well as um, Cook um, Group. So this is also, the county has uh, pledged money pending the award of the grant and approval of the county council, but the plan is to use some of the opioid settlement money that has been made available to us. But none of this would would have been possible without the the effort of Ms. Kelly's staff. And some of these things are very, very innovative, things I had never even heard of before. But um, for example, purchasing a machine that's able to uh, it's a spectrometer that's able to detect whether or not fentanyl or other drugs are in illicit drugs that are street drugs, and it takes just like one hundredth or a thousandth of a gram <clears throat> to test whether or not such substances are, are present. Um, looking at kiosks for drug take back, again for harm reduction, and just some 
some things that'll be visible and available to everybody in our community. So I, I think that this is really a step forward and I'm very, very excited about it. We should be notified May 1st, whether or not we will get the, the money. It's being determined on a sort of a, a line by line basis in terms of these different kind of projects that we asked for, but um, I'm very optimistic. I think it was very well done and so thank you. Next, Highway Department Director Lisa Ridge shared that they are starting construction on the Bicentennial Pathway Project this week. We are starting the Bicentennial Pathway Project uh, this week, construction. Um, as of today, we will be putting uh, door hangers on every resident that is affected out there to, uh, to begin the project. It'll be on our website for an email that you can sign up for project status updates. You can issue complaints, concerns that you have for this project. Um, but we want to be as transparent and let everyone know the process um, and how, it, how we go forward through the construction season for 2023 for this project. Um, the project actually runs from Audubon Drive to um, past Fire Station Hill on Old State Road 37 North. Next, the commissioners voted on a contract with Susan Brackney for communication services. County Attorney Jeff Cockrell explained what services would entail. Yes, this is a, an agreement to help uh, organize your communications. And uh, this, in the, the contract in the packet is blank as to the dollar amount. Um, we wanted to determine exactly what the, the county council had uh, appropriated for this, and 25000 fits within that, within that number. This contract will run till the end of the year. Monroe County Council Member Marty Hawk asked what the purpose of the contract was. Cockrell responded, could you describe to the public what this contract will actually do, what the work is to be? Did you, could you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yes, this, this is particularly, I mean, these are the general and clearly if something comes up that falls within these scopes, so it's not limited to this, but identifying and prioritizing opportunities for meaningful media and public outreach, creating original content, both digital and print, uh, writing and design, uh, outreach to traditional and non-traditional media outlets, developing and disseminating a direct to public messaging, uh, media relations trainings for the commissioners, um, crisis management, and uh, creating best practice operational documents for these kind of communications. Commissioner's Administrator Angela Purdy shared that the position was approved in the budget that passed the Monroe County Council. The commissioners unanimously approved the contract. The next Monroe County Commissioner's meeting will be held on March 8th. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Ruth Flegman reported on a protest in March criticizing Indiana University's response to recent acts of discrimination. Flegman has more. On February 2nd, 2023, Protesters gathered for a march and town hall in Bloomington to demonstrate against Indiana University's response to recent acts of discrimination. On January 14th, IU student Declan Farley posted a TikTok about harassment he faced on the floor of his dorm, which received over 2 million views. Here's the audio from the TikTok, 
we would like to give a trigger warning that this audio mentions suicide. My name is Declan Farley, and I am a trans queer student at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Over the past five months, I have experienced extreme harassment on the floor of my dorm. It started with banging on my door and running away, then turned into yelling slurs outside of my door. Not only that, but they have dumped food and put trash outside of my door. Most recently, I witnessed someone licking the outside of my door while I was inside. When the most recent incident happened, I gave a description of the people involved immediately after, and no action was taken. This harassment has caused an extreme amount of stress and an emotional toll on me. Now, because of this and other stressors, I attempted to take my own life last semester. I am making this TikTok to spread awareness about the homophobia and transphobia on IU's campus. IU prides themselves on being a safe and open space for queer students, yet ignores issues like these. I hope you will help me spread awareness and demand that IU takes accountability for their actions and the actions of their students and works to protect students like me. After the protest, Farley expressed his solidarity for other queer people in Bloomington facing oppression and discussed his plans for future action. I just want to say that, you know, a couple things, you know, one, if you're queer in Bloomington or anywhere, just know that, you know, I want to be a voice for you and I have tons of people that also want to be a voice for you and you can always reach out to me and I will try and, you know, share your story and really, you know, help you, support you because right now I have a voice, but it's like I said, it's not just for myself. And then also that the work here is definitely not done. We're going to be starting petitions. And if things don't happen, we're going to protest again. We're just going to not stop until things are done. So definitely stay tuned. Farley referred to an incident that took place on January 11th, in which an 18-year-old Asian student was the victim of an anti-Asian stabbing on a bus. Farley expressed his disappointment with the way that Indiana University's administration handled his situation. And there are other things that are happening on campus. So, you know, and on and off campus, especially like the Asian student being stabbed, you know, and other students on campus that shared their stories tonight, I wanted to give them a chance to speak because the school will not give them a chance to even speak. Or, you know, they post it online, it doesn't get anything. Luckily, mine did, but I don't want to just use my voice for myself. It's, it's definitely for everyone else as well. So that's why we kind of thought about the protest as being, you know, march, show everyone we're here, and then allow people to share their stories. Amazing. Yeah, and so now that um, we've kind of heard all the stories, how are you feeling now at the end of this evening, reflecting back on what we've just heard? Oh, yeah, no, I definitely feel really proud of everyone that came up and, you know, a little proud of myself for sure because it's been a pretty stressful couple weeks. So I definitely feel proud that we put this together. Other protesters also discussed experience of racist anti-Asian hate in Bloomington. Diona? An Asian student at IU spoke about the racism she experienced in her sophomore year at Bloomington High School North. She described a supply teacher who constantly humiliated her, demeaned her, and gave her white classmates preferential treatment. Diona discussed the aftermath that experiencing this racism caused her. After that semester, I got my teacher back, but basically, obviously, she was being very like mean and racist towards me and targeting me a lot. And um, throughout that year, I didn't really get a lot of support, so I didn't really talk about it, and I had to become silenced from it. And it was not until um, senior year of high school we got a new principal, and I was finally able to like talk about it and reach out to my new principal. And obviously, you think when you talk about someone who is racist and is a teacher at an institution that is supposed to be accepting about everybody, 
you'd think they would do something about it. Um, it was like three months of fighting and basically she just got a slap on her wrist. They talked to her and, you know, she did the whole, uh, you know, white woman victim thing and was saying like, I can't believe this is going on. Like, A freshman student at IU named Ella spoke at the town hall describing the homophobic harassment she received at McNutt's residence hall. Um, my girlfriend and I returned to my dorm after being friends. Sarah made eye contact with me from down the hall. There was pounding on the door. It was loud enough that it rattled the wall, the door, the door frame, and the door was being pounded so violently that it looked like the door was about to be forced open, even though it was locked. Um, I checked the peephole and saw five boys. I recognized some of them as boys on my floor, the same ones that were friends with Sarah, and the same ones that asserted that he would sleep with me by the end of the month. They were pounding their fists in cardboard boxes against my door. I heard laughter from the other end of the hall. They did not violently pound on anyone else's door. They left the destroyed cardboard boxes on the ground outside my door. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they did this immediately after finding out that I was gay. Um, my girlfriend and I were terrified. We couldn't leave the door the rest of the night. And she decided that she no longer felt safe visiting me at IU. Um, on August 20th, I decided to file a bias incident report and request to be moved. I was told that my bias incident report was lost two different times. Um, I didn't get moved out until 22 days later. So that was 22 days where my roommate had to walk me to the bathroom. I was scared to leave my dorm. I left my residence hall whenever I could and tried to be as far away as possible. Local resident and activist Jada B said that hate is not new in Bloomington. She noted that the problems facing the community are systemic and need to be dealt with as such. One of the things I dislike a lot about the transitory nature of Bloomington, Indiana, uh, meaning that we have a lot of influx of students and they leave, they come here, they're here for four years maybe, and they leave and they go on, is that the history doesn't get transmitted to you. IU's not going to give you a welcome packet that says, here are all the hate crimes that we've had on our campus because they want to present this as a safe and open campus. And for many students, it can and is a safe and open campus. But when you add your diversity level on top of that, things get complicated. When we add our intersecting idea, ideologies and identities into that, things get complicated. Um, and this is a campus that has had uh, massive shootings this is a campus who has had football players murdered by the local PD. This is a campus that has active white supremacy groups. This is a campus and town that has ignored the pleas of black folks in our community for years and years and years. Lexi Sacco, an IU student from Indianapolis studying psychology, explained why she attended the protest and march. Um, I really just, I saw Declan's TikTok, of course, and um, I really was just disgusted by IU's uh, way of handling the situation, and I knew that there, that something needed to happen. Sacco outlined what this protest means to her. She elaborated on what she hopes to see as a result of the demonstration. Um, to me, it means that community is a lot stronger um, than just administration. Like, we can come together and make change. We don't need people to be telling us what to do. And we can really show people, like, 
this is what needs to be happening and hopefully that people will listen. Um, I'm hoping that they, that administration would take things more seriously and not just brush it under the rug and act like it's not happening because it's happening and they really need to open their eyes and see that it is. She also touched on what local residents can do to fight back against hate and discrimination. I think being educated more on the topics and um, just how to treat people fairly, because I know that a lot of people grew up with parents who were homophobic or transphobic or racist or whatever, and I really think that we need to relearn our values and be our own person and really just help other people. For WFHB, I'm Ruth Flegman. Now it's time for Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world, hosted by Abe Shapiro. We turn to Shapiro for more. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. This week, the disability rights community gathers to mourn the loss of one of its most fervent supporters and founders, Judy Human, who passed away last Sunday at the age of 75. Born in Brooklyn in 1947, Judy Human was diagnosed with polio at the age of 18 months and used a wheelchair throughout the majority of her life. Until she was in fourth grade, Human was not allowed to attend public school with other students her age, as the school's administration had deemed her to be a fire hazard. She was instead educated at home twice a week for an hour by a representative from the New York Public School District. Her mother, though, never gave up and continued to fight for her daughter's inclusion, which was finally granted. Although her education had been granted, Human's fight against such an injustice in society was just beginning. In 1970, the New York Board of Education refused to grant her a teaching license on the grounds that she was, as stated earlier in her life, a fire hazard to her students and fellow staff. Instead of being put out, such a decision only served to grow the blaze of determination that Judy Human exhibited as she sued the Board of Education for her right to teach. Ultimately, the case was settled out of court, and Human became the first wheelchair-bound teacher in the state of New York. The case itself brought her to national attention, as it was cited in a New York Daily News article called You Can Be President, But Not a Teacher with Polio. Over the next 30 years, Judy Human would contribute time and again towards ensuring the inclusion of individuals with disabilities in all facets of life. In 1973, following President Richard Nixon's initial vetoing of Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which was meant to create national regulations, preventing discrimination of individuals with disabilities attempting to partake in federal programs, she and over 80 other activists blocked traffic on New York City's Madison Avenue. Nixon would ultimately sign Section 504 into law. However, in 1977, while such national regulations meant to prevent segregation were written, they had not yet been signed into law. Judy Human led over 150 activists inside the San Francisco office of the federal department meant to craft the regulations, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, where they stayed for over 25 days, after which the secretary of Hugh, James Califano, relented and signed the Section 504 regulations into law. 
Throughout the remainder of her life, Judy Human's journey took her to many positions of leadership, from serving as Assistant Secretary of the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services at the U.S. Department of Education during the Clinton administration, to becoming the World Bank's first advisor on disability and development, and to serving as the first special advisor for international disability rights at the State Department during the Obama administration. Her biography, Becoming Human, was published in February 2020. In her words, quote, Disability only becomes a tragedy for me when society fails to provide the things we need to lead our lives. Job opportunities or barrier-free buildings, for example. It's not a tragedy to me that I'm living in a wheelchair, end quote. When Disabulletin resumes in two weeks' time, we will continue our investigative report, Lawyers, School, and Access, a history of special education law in the United States. We will pick up from 1930s Ohio, where parents had begun fighting back against what was at the time the traditional philosophy that disabled children were uneducable. We'll feature the arc of Ohio's CEO, Gary Tonks, who will expand upon how organizations such as his sought to combat this myth leading up to the first state court case that would shatter the myth of ineducable students with disabilities, 1971's Park v. Penn. For WFHB News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. Up next, we have Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between Lil Bub's Big Fun and WFHB. We turn now to that segment. Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here is today's featured animal. Today's featured pets come to us from our local Bloomington shelter. Rosemary and Time are a cute pair of bonded kittens who came from a feral mom, but have gotten used to being around people at the shelter, though they're both still shy and tend to hide. With a lot of socialization, they would do well in a home that gives them time to warm up. During the day, they like to act like comfy kittens and curl up and sleep. With patience and time, they can relax. It'll just take the right adopters who are willing to give these under-socialized kittens the chance that they deserve. If you are interested in meeting or adopting Rosemary and Time, please visit the Bloomington Shelter. If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, you can learn more at our websites, goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. Today's featured topic is Getting to Know Wild Care, a great organization serving South Central Indiana. Wild Care is a nonprofit organization that was formed in the spring of 2001, formerly a part of the Monroe County Humane Association, 
until they refocus their mission to just companion animal services. WildCare's focus is on providing professional care to sick, injured, and orphaned wildlife so that they may be returned to the wild. They provide care and rehabilitation services to all native Indiana wildlife species, with the exception of deer, and also strive to help protect the next generation of wildlife through education and community outreach programs. WildCare provides treatment for about 1,500 to 2,000 animals per year, and they have taken in thousands of animals since incorporating in 2001. They also do approximately 75 educational outreach programs, reaching up to 3,000 people every year. WildCare holds permits through the Indiana DNR, USDA, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. They do not receive any state or federal funding and rely only on donor support to save the lives of injured and orphaned wild animals. WildCare has very limited staff and mostly relies on volunteers who generously donate their time to help feed, clean, and ensure the best quality of care for each wild patient. Each animal is evaluated by team leaders who specialize in that particular species. Team leaders determine the course of care for each individual animal. Those care plans are then implemented by volunteers and animal care technicians. WildCare helps folks understand what to do if they've found an animal. While you should always call for up-to-date information, here's a quick overview of the general steps you can take. If you found an animal, first determine if the animal you found really needs your help. About half of the animals brought to a rehabilitator should have been left alone. Wild animals are great parents. Their young are always better off with them. It's important to remember that it is illegal to keep a wild animal native to Indiana without a permit for any reason. Nearly all native wild animals in Indiana are protected under state and federal laws. The dietary needs for animals are different, and duplicating these is very difficult without specific training. Please do not feed any wild animal cow's milk. The lactose in cow's milk will kill most infant wild animals. Many animals brought to wild care have been further harmed by improper captive care. In addition, Animals may carry diseases and or parasites, which can be dangerous to humans. Simply because an animal looks healthy doesn't mean that it is disease and parasite free. Please put your pets inside if you believe you have found an abandoned or injured wild animal. While it is not true that animals will reject caring for their young if they've been handled by humans, handling should be kept to a minimum, as it is stressful for the animal. Do not pick up a wild animal with your bare hands. There are a variety of ways to rescue an injured or orphaned wild animal. The most effective with least contact are to place a pillowcase or t-shirt over the animal and wearing gloves, place it into a box with holes for air. You can also use a magazine or newspaper to slide under the animal and wearing gloves, place it into a box or basket. You should use tissues, paper towels, t-shirts, or pillowcases to help the animal stay warm. You should not feed or water the animal as ingesting the wrong food may cause death. The most important points to remember are these. If you found an animal, keep the animal where it is if you can. Do not pick up an animal with bare hands. Instead, try to use gloves. Keep the animal in a warm, quiet area, preferably in a box with towels. 
Do not remove the animal from the area needlessly. Observe the animal without touching for any injuries or broken bones. Do not feed the animal or give the animal medicine. Do not keep the animal as a pet. And you can always call Wild Care at 812-323-1313. If you're interested in learning more about Wild Care and supporting their work, you can visit their website at wildcareinc.org. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB. Produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Ruth Flegman. Lil Bub's Lil Show is produced by Christine Brackenoff and Stacey Rodowski. Disabilletin is produced by Abe Shapiro. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Abe Shapiro, Live and Learn. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned now for a heavyweight. A reinvestigation into the disappearance of Joseph Smedley, coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local longer.